Chapter Fourteen of the Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Blexley's Opinion. Despite the threatening clouds on the horizon, which hinted at coming trouble, the days passed very quietly at the Grange. As an elderly male chaperone, Mr. Mardibon remained to look after his client, and the very respectable Mrs. Blexley was also useful in this necessary capacity. Prelice, unable to tear himself away from the too dangerous society of Mona, and dangerous it was, considering his feelings and her engagement to Ned, lingered at the Hyde Hotel. Shepworth, strange to say, did not put in an appearance. "'It's odd,' remarked Prelice, when strolling over the lawns on the third day of his arrival. "'It's odd that Ned doesn't come down.' He put the observation in the form of a query, and so Mona, who strolled beside him, was forced to reply. But she did so unwillingly and as briefly as was possible. "'Very odd,' she said indifferently. Lord Prelice cast a puzzled side glance at her beautiful face, which looked ethereal and rosy under a red sunshade. Even as yet he could not understand what were her feelings towards his friend. And as he was more in love than ever, the situation was perplexing from its very vagueness. In sheer desperation he tried to make her talk of Ned, which she did very rarely, by continuing the topic. Ned said the young man, eyeing the trees, the lawns, the sky, and the house, with a fine affectation of indifference. Ned has been acquitted at the inquest, and the jury gave a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown in the orthodox style. Agstone has been buried, and here am I waiting for an interview with Ned to settle some course of action towards elucidating these criminal problems. Yet he has not come down, and has not even replied to my letter. Miss Chent shifted her sunshade from one shoulder to the other. I expect he'll come down when he is ready, said she calmly. Oh, Jerusalem! "'Excuse the swear word, Miss Chent, but if I were Ned, I should have come here ages ago.' "'You did, Lord Prelice, but if you are so anxious to interview Ned, and I quite admit the necessity, why not go up to London?' Her companion wiggled uneasily and searched his brains for an excuse to remain in his uncomfortable paradise." "'Well, you see, er, that is, my dear young lady, I am, to put it plainly, er, my aunt, you know Lady Sophia, is coming to Folkestone. "'She arrived there last night, Lord Prelice.' "'Eh? What? You don't, er, you don't say so?' Mona laughed, and the young man was glad to hear her laugh. She gave way rarely to merriment during the undecided present. "'Why did you write about me to Lady Sophia?' asked the girl gently. "'I?' Prelice was quite prepared to lie, but decided not to when he saw the expression of her face. "'Well, you see, that is—' 
You understand that an aunt is an aunt. I never thought that she was an uncle. Course not, but there, you see, my aunt expected me to write and I have written. You needn't have made me the subject matter of your letter. Who said that I did? asked Prelice, growing scarlet. Lady Sophia herself. I received a note from her this morning, and considering my position, a very kind note. It seems that you wrote asking her to stand by me, and she has come to Folkestone to do so. Loud cheers, cried Prelice shamelessly. I always thought that Aunt Sophia was a brick. She never believed you were guilty, you know, he went on confusedly. Said all manner of nice things about you to me whenever we met. Now she'll take you under her wing and make things hot for any society fool that dares to say a word against you. Why do you do this for me, Lord Prelice? asked Mona in a rather faltering tone and averting her too-speaking face. I am, that is, well, Ned's friend, you know. Oh, Mona's voice became steady, and she turned to look at him squarely. So you enlist your aunt on my behalf for Ned's sake. Was there ever such a perplexing girl? A moment ago, and she seemed pleased at being championed by Lady Sophia. Now her looks and her voice were cold. Prelice, in sheer desperation, blurted out the truth in a blundering manner. A little bit for my own sake also. I am glad of that. Are you? This time it was the young man's voice which became unsteady, for he did not know whether he was on his head or his heels. That's all right a sentiment of honor towards the absent Chefworth, who would not look after his own interests, made him end thus lamely. Mona laughed again and was enigmatic as the Sphinx. It is extremely good of you, Lord Prelice, she went on in a guarded manner. Lady Sophia can help me greatly to recover my position in society. You have never lost it, blurted out Prelice crossly, I did lose it, and I have lost it, she answered sadly, and I shall never recover it entirely until the murder of my uncle is discovered. Lady Sophia, who really likes me, loves you, loves you. No, no, she likes me. Let us say that she has an affection for me. That is a greatly to be appreciated state of mind for one woman to be in towards another. That's rather a German sentence, isn't it? I don't know what you mean, muttered Prelice, beginning to find out that, after all his experience in the four quarters of the globe, he was but a neophyte where women were concerned. I mean that Lady Sophia's liking or affection for me will do a great deal to rehabilitate me, but that the punishment of Uncle Oliver's assassin will do more and your marriage with Ned will do most of all. Mona mocked him. Marriage covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? Prelice clutched his head, but his hair was too close-cropped for him to grip. I am to be best man, he said feebly, and found a delight in torturing himself. Oh, has Ned selected you for that post? He did when we were at Eton. I see. 
Then he was engaged when at Eton. How precocious! The young man groaned and glanced at her despairingly, quite unable to understand her moods. Lately she had been sad. Now her eyes were dancing with merriment. I am glad you are happy, he said in a surly tone, for this mystery of her engagement tortured him. I am, she assented swiftly, and for three reasons. May I hear them? Certainly. In the first place, you and Ned will find out who killed my uncle and poor old Steve, so as to clear my character. In the second place, Lady Sophia is coming over today, and thus begins the necessary whitewashing for me to re-enter the world. And in the third place, she ended seriously, throughout all this trouble I have had a firm conviction that God would help me. He has helped me by saving my life from a legal death, and he will help me to clear my character. Some day, perhaps in the near future, there won't be a single stain on my name. Now don't speak, she held up her hand. You are about to say that there is not a stain now, but there is. To remove it, I trust in God first and in you second. What about Ned? asked Prelice restlessly. Oh, in Ned also, she rejoined and looked at him quietly, as he made no observation, and he could not out of sheer perplexity. She turned on her Louis Cat's heel. I am going in to get ready for the visit of Lady Sophia, she said abruptly. Prelice watched the red sunshade vanish into the house, then dug his stick into the turf and swore volubly. He had a considerable command of language in this respect, but rarely exercised his vocabulary. On this occasion he did, since ordinary words failed to soothe him. And even as it was, swearing did little good, so Prelice started to walk violently and aimlessly, only desirous of restoring his temper to its usual state of cynical calm by abnormal exercise. He could not make Mona, as he called her mentally, out in any way whatsoever. She was certainly engaged to Ned, and yet she spoke of him quite unemotionally, as she would have done of, well, not of an acquaintance perhaps, but of a friend. She could not possibly love him, and if she did not, should certainly not be engaged to him. Ned had no money and no position, so she assuredly could not be seeking to better herself by the marriage. Certainly gratitude might induce her to become his wife, since he had stood by her, but then, and here Prelice swore again. She had been engaged to him some time before the death of Sir Oliver, and when no gratitude could possibly have entered into her acceptance. And if she was merely grateful, Ned would not marry her on that account, especially since, on the authority of Mrs. Rover, he loved another woman. For the third time, Prelice swore over the problem, and determined to throw all delicacy to the winds, so far as Shepworth was concerned. The moment Ned arrived at the Grange, he would ask him plainly what he meant, and what she meant, and what the whole infernal complication meant. It was quite impossible that a young aristocrat with a large income and a healthy frame and a loving heart 
should sit on thorns any longer. Blankety blank blank, raged Prelice, and looked up on hearing an exclamation of horror at his elbow. His aimless walk had led him to the kitchen garden and to a bed of pot herbs, which Mrs. Blexley was laboriously picking. Being stout, and like Hamlet's scant of breath, the housekeeper wheezed like a creaky wheel as she stooped to gather some sage and thyme. But she retained enough breath to cry out with horror when hearing this handsome young gentleman swearing, as she afterwards described it, like the late Mr. Blexley, who had been a skipper of renown in the way of bad language. "'I beg your pardon,' said Prelice, showing his white teeth, in a smile which won Mrs. Blexley's heart. "'I'm a little put out. Didn't know any lady was within earshot. "'Bless you, my lord. I'm not a lady, and never laid claim to be one. So swearing, though not proper, don't worry me over much. It calls back old times, sir. Really? Did you swear yourself? Me? Mrs. Blexley looked indignant. Why, I belong to the united inhabitants of the celestial regions. What? It's my religion, said Mrs. Blexley simply. What you might call my sect, my lord. There's very few of us, but we all go to heaven. "'There's nothing like being certain of your destination,' said Prelice dryly, and was about to move on when the housekeeper stopped him. "'Your pardon, my lord, but I've been trying to catch your eyes ever since you came here, but never managed it till now.' "'In a kitchen garden, too,' ended Mrs. Blexley mournfully, "'which don't seem to be the place for a lord of high degree to speak in.' "'It suited him to swear in it, however.' murmured Prelice frivolously, then added in louder tones, What do you wish to speak to me about? Not about him that is gone, remarked Mrs. Blexley, referring to her lost spouse, though his language, begging your lordship's pardon, was as like yours as bean pods, and because of such talk he'll never come back, never. Them that has him will keep him. Indeed, are they? "'Whomsoever they may be fond of him?' "'I don't think so, my lord. "'You see, he's, well, he's dead, my lord.' "'Prelice put up his hand to swirl his mustache and hide a smile. "'Then you think that—' "'I'm sorry for Blexley,' interrupted the housekeeper firmly. "'But he didn't belong to the united inhabitants of celestial regions. "'So he—' "'She pointed stealthily downward. "'Let us hope it is not so bad as that.' said Prelice, choking with suppressed laughter. "'You wish to speak to me?' he repeated politely. "'To catch your lordship's eyes, as it were. "'That has been accomplished. What next?' Mrs. Blexley groaned and made an effort. "'It's about Miss Mona.' The young man's merriment died away, and he looked keenly at the red-faced, shapeless old woman. "'What's that?' he demanded. In the imperialist tone which formerly he had used towards recalcitrant soldiers. Mrs. Blexley, being timid, dropped with a thud onto the sage and thyme, and placed a podgy hand on her ample breast, gasping like a fish out of water. The heart, my lord, mother sighed, it ain't strong. 
If your lordship would speak less like a gun going off. Certainly, interrupted Prelice in his most silky tones. What have you to tell me about Miss Mona? It ain't about her exactly, my lord, but there's the will, you know, and that Madame Eppingrave, as she called herself, though I don't believe it is her name for all her airs and graces, and she nearly as old as me, and as stout, too, for all her tight lacing. Prelice, leaning against the mellow brick wall where the nectarines grew, stared at the fat woman, who was still prostrate amidst the herbs. If you knew of such things, Mrs. Blexley, why didn't you explain in court? Because I don't believe in courts, or in them as is in courts, said Mrs. Blexley, fanning herself with a pink sunbonnet. They got me to give what they called evidence, and say things against my dear pretty Miss Mona. I nursed her, sir. I was born in the Grange, and have served the Landwinds all my life. When Mrs. Chent went away with her husband, I followed, and when she and him died, I came back here with Miss Mona, as Sir Oliver wished, to be the housekeeper. Prelice nodded sympathetically. I know that you are devoted to Miss Mona, he said, approving of this devotion. You are too, my lord, ain't you? asked the old woman pointedly. The young man grew as red as the brick wall against which he was leaning, but Mrs. Blexley, seeing this sign of anger, went on hastily. I don't mean boldness, my lord, indeed I don't, but Miss Mona does need a friend sadly, my lord, and she tells me that you are one. I am, said Prelice firmly and flushing again, and I am glad that she spoke thus of me. But about this Madame Marie Eppingrave. I never liked her, my lord. An oily flatterer she was, with a gimlet eye and a buttery tongue. She was always trying to get the better of Sir Oliver, and gave him that nasty thing that made the smoke. Prelice naturally looked startled. Why, Sir Oliver brought the herb from Easter Island himself. At least I fancy he did. I don't, my lord, and what's more, he didn't. I went into the library to ask Master what he'd have for dinner, and Madame Eppingrave, if that is her name, the old bag of rags, was showing Master a lot of dry stems and purple leaves and talking about trances and such-like rubbish. That was just a week before Sir Oliver's death. "'What do you make of that, Mrs. Blexley?' asked Prelice thoughtfully. "'I don't make anything of it, sir. "'But it was strange that the nasty, smoky weeds she gave Master should bring about his death. "'Madame Marie had no reason to wish Sir Oliver dead. "'Oh, no, my lord. "'Why, she lost a good friend in him, and often must have desired him to be alive and kicking.' All the same, sir, she gave him them withered leaves, and through them Master came by his end. Prelice nodded absently. He required time to think over the matter and turned away to be alone. Then a thought struck him, and he returned to the housekeeper. What about the will? he demanded. It wasn't burnt. You must be mistaken. The court... "'Much them lawyers knew about it,' cried Mrs. Blexley, struggling to her feet. "'I never said it to them, because they said as it would help Miss Mona to get out of their nasty clutches if the will was proved to be burnt. 
So I said what I was told, for Miss Mona's sake. But Sir Oliver was writing out another will. How do you know? asked Prelice sharply and much disturbed. I saw him writing it, said Mrs. Blexley firmly. It was never signed, to my knowledge. But you can take my word for it, my lord, that the unsigned will was burnt, and that Miss Mona is entitled by the other to the property. End of chapter 14